live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is the last part in our series on the Holocaust. Last week, we discussed the immense theft that took place. And I believe this week, we're going to dive a bit deeper into the details. Well, last week, we dealt with the war itself. So the Nazi confiscation of wealth across Europe. And this week, we will deal with what happened after the war was over. And it is controversial. Why? Well... Not because of the wealth itself, but because of the questions that arose post-World War II about restitution, which don't have easy answers from a Jewish perspective. Let's start, though, with a clarification. I mentioned last week that the Swiss didn't exactly cover themselves in glory during the war. I didn't refer to all Swiss citizens, but rather the blatant and overt positions and actions taken by the Swiss government and Swiss police during the 1930s and the war years, and of course that of the Swiss banks, more of which we will revert to later. Thank you, Peter, for pointing that out. Important, this podcast is Le'ilu Nishmas, and in memory of Harold and Muriel March of Hull. Weren't there many Jews throughout the Holocaust that survived because they were in Switzerland? Yes, once they got there in the main. And there was a 5,000 strong Jewish community in Switzerland. But that's a very different way of seeing the issue that wealth generated. Right. So, by 1951, the war is long over. The numbers of Jews murdered in the war is known. And the survivors are trying to pick up the shards of life that are left to them. Some are still stateless, homeless. So in a way, the Holocaust hadn't ended yet. Well, definitely not neatly on the 8th or 9th of May, 1945. And although the state of Israel has come into being, it is on the verge of bankruptcy. And then there's Germany, who wants to rejoin the nations of the world at an international level, especially the newly created West Germany. And in 1951, Konrad Adenauer, the German chancellor, announces in the Bundestag that he is prepared to pay reparations to the Jews. But saying it and doing it are light years apart. How much do you owe? How much are six million people worth? Six million targeted victims, not inadvertent victims. And Germany was in ruins. Obviously, the population in Germany in 1952 was more or less the same population that went to war, so they would be opposed to reparations. Um, They'd been indoctrinated for years that Jews were bad, so even so-called neutral Germans weren't prepared to pay. In fact, only 11% of the German population supported compensation talks. Who is this Konrad Adenauer? What's his background? So... 
he had always been opposed to the Nazi regime. In fact, he'd been removed from office and arrested in 1944. And he understood that a a terrible injustice had been committed. But simply, he was dealing with the fact that most Germans were not prepared to ascribe collective guilt to an entire nation. The fact that the Jews suffered wasn't on their minds. There's a, a documentary that was released this year, which shows that in polls that the Allies conducted in Germany in the years immediately after 45, asking who lost the most in the war, Jews were at the bottom of the list because no one is re-educating Germany. You know, we, we never really think about it. How did Germany deal with their immediate past? And the answer is they didn't. There were films made of the concentration camps, you know, Alfred Hitchcock and others. But by 1952, everyone's getting on with life. There are lots of ex-Nazis, especially the more minor ones, who are in Germany's uh, civil service and equally in Austria. And of course, the new threat is communism. So that's the current focus at hand, not the Jews. Yeah. And as for the Jews themselves, so negotiating with Germany is negotiating with the devil. It's blood money. So you're saying there's three obstacles. Will the Jews accept a German offer? Can Germany deliver? And I guess how much should be paid, as you said before, what is the price of lives? Right. So let's start with with the first of those, the Jews. So in in Israel, Ben-Gurion is building a country from scratch. By 1952, Israel had an extra 700,000 refugees in a country that initially had a population of 600,000 in 1948. 400,000 Svardim who'd left everything behind and 300,000 Eastern European Holocaust survivors who had nothing to leave behind. They've all arrived in the last few years and there is literally no money in the Israeli treasury. There is rationing. You know, monthly a person is allowed 12 eggs, 300 grams of cheese. And Ben-Gurion said, I don't know the pain of the survivors, but I need to keep Israel going. And at the time, in Israel, there is a tremendous boycott of Germany. I mean, unsurprisingly, but to a degree that we don't know of. Israeli passports had printed in French, tous les pays à l'exception de l'Allemagne, which means valid for travel anywhere except Germany. So in the Knesset, there's a three-day debate. And emotions run high in the Knesset, even higher on the streets. Menachem Begin led the opposition in the streets. The murderers of our parents shouldn't be allowed to pay for their crimes with a cheque, especially an anonymous one from the state with no real apology for their crimes. To give you an idea, the Jerusalem Post headline reads, 200 hurt as police defend Knesset from Herut riot. Police riot squads wearing steel helmets battled with more than a thousand demonstrators who broke through cordons and barbed wire barriers and then stoned the Knesset building, smashing windows. The rioters were dispersed after a two hour battle by police using tear gas and batons. But as a result, during a Mapam speech, one of the Herut Party MKs, Dr. Yochanan Beda, he bursts into the Knesset 
chamber and he says you're using gas against the Jews that's how you want to win the argument it is very very emotional and Begin spoke in the Knesset and he said we will give our lives we will say goodbye to our children but we will not accept money from Germany I know that you Ben-Gurion's government have power you have prisons an army police force and machine guns I know you can drag me off to a concentration camp but we will not accept reparations from Germany. And he was suspended from the Knesset for three months because of this speech. You know, you're using concentration camp to other Jews. And it ended being passed by the Knesset by 61 votes in favor of reparations. And they decided on a $1 billion claim based on the 500,000 refugees who are now in Israel, Holocaust refugees. How did they come to that figure? based on the amount of people that were there. How they knew there were half a million refugees. Or oh, helped a billion dollars for 500,000 people. That's I guess what, there's no... Yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately, but... The, there's the, no the, real exchange rate. Yes, exactly. So this is all happening in Israel, and obviously it's a huge emotional upheaval. What about the survivors all over the world? How were they supposed to get reparations? Well, there obviously wasn't a single entity representing all these Jewish countries, people, they organized a conference of Jewish organizations in late 51 with 23 participating groups. So you have, besides for the Americans, you have the British Board of Deputies, South African jury, French jury, and 22 out of the 23 agreed to reparations. One was opposed, Agudas Israel, and they called it moral suicide. The conference named itself the Conference of Material Jewish Claims Against Germany. In other words, material claims. It's not for the absolution of guilt. And they decided that it would not be for those who had died, just like Israel. It would be for personal suffering and for the property taken. Sort of Haratzacht of Rashta, those were the two ideas. And when the negotiations then started, they needed to make sure that Adenauer was sincere and Germany would pay. So Nachum Goldman, who's the head of the World Jewish Congress, he meets Adenauer in December 51 in Claridge's in London, a meeting between a high-ranking Jew and a high-ranking German in secret. And eventually three representatives were sent by Israel and three from World Jewry. And they come to this conference in Holland, and the Germans say they want an account of how the money would be spent, to which Moshe Levitt, who was the head of the joint, the JDC, said, it's none of your business. Fair enough. Right. Now, at the same time that this conference or this uh, negotiation is going on, there were negotiations in London where the Allied governments were looking at a $5 billion plan to repay all the damage caused by Germany during World War II. And Hermann Joseph Abs, who was the head of Deutsche Bank from 1938 to 45, and he is representing Germany at these talks, he wanted the world debt to be settled first and the Jews second. And the Jews said, forget about it. We are first. You owe us a moral debt besides for anything else. But after three weeks, Germany insisted that the London debt comes first. And all the Jews who opposed the conference had said, you'll see. Jews will be used as PR to get everyone to the negotiating table, and then we will be dropped. So all six Jews walk out of the negotiations. 
And in fact, even two of the German contingent, who were both anti-Nazis, resigned. And Abs used the opportunity to offer a hundred million to Israel instead of a billion because he knows that they're desperate for funds. And all of this, of course, is playing out in the international press. Fine. May 52, in order to break the deadlock, Goldman goes to visit Adenauer in Germany. And Adenauer overrules his own government and he says, no, the Jews come first. And they made a deal for $750 million, although it would be paid over 12 years, and some of it not in cash, but in goods, which enabled the construction and expansion in Israel. So the world viewed the agreement as drawing a line under everything, not just financially, which in many ways is quite hurtful to the survivors. It's as if, you know, they've made peace because they took money. And the Germans called it Wiedergutmachen, to make whole again. The Jews called it compensation for crime. And to date, Germany has paid out $90 billion. But for instance, you have a family that was interviewed and they said, you know, after the war, we returned to Poland to wait for survivors of our family, waited for three years, and no one came out of 150 members. And now they're going to try and give us money for that. Forget it. Where does all the rest of the money go from then till now, the 90 billion? It's gone to survivors and to other issues, which we will get to eventually. Now, Goldman said he represented the survivors, but ultimately it was Israel that survived as a result. And, you know, who knows what would have happened without that money. But most survivors outside the country were pretty much left high and dry, especially those in the DP camps. And it wasn't until decades later that they received amounts which could be considered uh, useful or real. And, of course, many never did by then because they weren't around anymore. Last week, you mentioned we were discussing Switzerland and the banks and the role they played there. You mentioned that this week you would discuss Switzerland, especially post-war. Yeah. Okay. So, first of all, we've dealt with that issue of what happens in a few years after the war. This Swiss issue is much later. As we mentioned, right up until the end of the war, Switzerland laundered hundreds of millions of dollars in stolen assets in German-occupied Europe, gold stolen from the banks and from Holocaust victims, even gold dental fillings extracted from corpses. And between 1940 and 45, the German Reichsbank sold 1.3 billion francs worth of gold to Swiss banks. And at the end of the war, Switzerland resisted Allied calls to restitute these funds, so the Allies accepted 12%. Now, there would be attempts over the years by survivors, especially by individuals, to reclaim their money made by them or their heirs, but typically they met an implacable wall of bureaucracy and only a handful managed to reclaim their assets. I mean, it would be very hard to prove how much had been taken, or even to know. Yeah, no one knew. Okay. So now fast forward 50 years, mid-1990s, 
and Jewish organizations start raising questions about dormant Swiss bank accounts, which contained assets of Holocaust victims. Why specifically now, in the 90s? So it's a confluence of events. Exactly 50 years had passed, which meant that a large amount of U.S. wartime intelligence documentation got declassified. And then a book was released by a Swiss journalist dealing with Switzerland's murky past, detailing that Swiss authorities had been happy to accept Jewish capital before the war from Jewish investors, but less happy to accept Jews themselves during the war. You know, it's well known that the Swiss blocked the entry of Jews attempting to flee Germany in 1938 at the suggestion of Swiss chief of police, Heinrich Rothmund. Byrne requested that Berlin mark the passports of Jews with a J so that German Jews could be instantly identified and be denied admission to Switzerland and left to languish in Nazi-occupied countries, which led in 1995 to the Swiss federal president, Kaspar Villiger, declaring that we bear a considerable burden of guilt for the treatment of Jews by our country. Now, as you mentioned earlier, those that got into Switzerland... It was a different story. They've somehow managed to get across the border. But at the border, most Jews were turned away. And this was the first official admission of any Swiss culpability for the fate of European Jews. We're talking about victims here, not about money. But the Swiss Bank Association president admitted at the time that the banks were holding Jewish assets. And he announced $32 million of still dormant accounts. And that was the total. Almost 600 people, he said, had been given restitution of their stolen property. So, you know, basically, how many could there still be left? There's 600 dealt with. And they refused point blank, the banks, to breach Switzerland's banking secrecy code and release the names of dormant accounts. This is mid-1990s. Now, nine years earlier, in an effort to appease critics, the UBS donated $40 million to the International Red Cross as a token payment to compensate for unclaimed accounts belonging to victims of the Shoah, which is obviously quite ironic, giving it to the Red Cross, given how they had been pretty indifferent to the plight of European Jews during the war. And in fact, Israel Singer, who was the Secretary General of the World Jewish Congress, said that this money given to the Red Cross is a gift of money from those who don't own it to those who don't deserve it. It's weird they didn't do the obvious and just give it to Israel and ticked every box. Well, the question is, was Israel the collective recipient? Would they have then had to give it out twice or three times? Right. Okay. So that's where they're at mid-1990s. But this time around, the USA gets involved. In late April 1996, New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato chaired a hearing on the Swiss banks in the US Senate. And President Clinton expresses his support. And they were looking for stories that then started surfacing. So you have Leah Weitzner, 
who was taken on September the 5th, 1942, with her mother by the SS, herded aboard a cattle truck. And as it is approaching Belgetz, her mother says to her, listen, if something happens to all of us, remember that your father's cousin, Edward, Edek, as they referred to him, had deposited large amounts of money in a Swiss bank or Swiss banks before the war. And she said to her, Leah, if you survive and you are alone, look for it. You will need it. And she added, I gave birth to you and now I must do something that may kill you. But if there's a miracle and you live, say that in that time, mothers had to make terrible choices. And she gets a group of other prisoners to construct a sort of ladder of the bodies of those who had already died on the cattle truck. And they hoisted Leah on top of this pile and pushed her through that tiny window in the cattle truck. She miraculously does survive. She poses as a Catholic. She stays with a farming family. And eventually she reaches Israel. But she doesn't know which bank has the money. So she writes letters to all the big banks. Some of them didn't answer. Some of them just sent a cold letter asking for money to conduct a search. So she gave up. Then you have a story from someone like Estelle Sapir, who did have details and receipts. But that wasn't enough. As she puts it, in 1946, I went to Switzerland to Geneva. I went to Credit Suisse, where my father had an account. And a woman came with a whole chart in her hand. And I saw it said J. Safir, Joseph Safir. And then somebody else comes and asks, can you prove you are his daughter? And I said, sure. And he said to me, do you have a death certificate from your father? So I said, my father was murdered in Auschwitz. I don't get death certificates from Auschwitz. Wow. She comes back in 1954. She gets the same answer. We can't do anything from you until we get a death certificate. And she said, what do you want me to do? Wake up Himmler, Eichmann? And she said, the man in this bank, he didn't have a heart. For me, he was a Nazi. So you said before that the bank claimed that there were 600 accounts. There must have been many, many more. So, yeah, he said, you know, how, sort of how many more could there be? But in August of 1939 alone, 17,000 transfers were made from Poland to Switzerland. These were all Jewish? No. No, not all Jewish, but Still, it's in going a to be country, more than 600. how many people there had any money to open a Swiss account? And that's just one country. And, you know, in the last year before the war, people came overnight from Amsterdam, Paris, Budapest, Prague. They stayed for 24 hours. They opened an account. No one in the family knew it existed. And they go back home and, you know, they, they are murdered. They even found that Hitler had his own Swiss bank account in the Union Bank branch in Bern to bank royalties from international sales of Mein Kampf. So there is tons of bad press coming out against the Swiss. And on the 2nd of May 1996, the banking officials in Switzerland, they sign an agreement with the World Jewish Congress and the Jewish Restitution Organizations to investigate deposits of Holocaust victims as a six-member commission, and they would audit to identify dormant accounts. 
three Jewish representatives, three representatives of the Swiss banking establishment, and it would be chaired by the former head of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Paul Vocker. And it actually ended up there were two investigations, one now made by the Swiss government, and they uncover, uh, first of all, as we've mentioned, evidence of Jewish refugees being turned away at the Swiss border, and Swiss companies profiting from the Nazi war machine, and the central bank buying gold looted from Jews. There was also documentation from Reichsbank's documents and sworn statements recorded by the Americans just after the war who interrogated uh, the head of the SS's Economic Administration Office that the first shipment of victim gold, including dental gold, had been delivered to the Reichsbank on August 26, 1942, accompanied by the mention of the dispatch point in Auschwitz. And this is brought to the public by the Deputy Secretary of State in America, a guy called uh, Stuart Eisenstadt. And they also recount in press conferences, the Americans this is, how in 1941, when the Nazi government stripped German Jews of any type of citizenship, the Swiss authorities applied that law to any German Jews living in Switzerland. They declared them stateless. And then in February 45, Swiss authorities blocked German bank accounts held in Switzerland because they declared that now German Jews are no longer stateless, but they're now being considered as German. So now they're blocking their bank accounts of Jews because they're now considered Germans after all. So all this is coming out. It's very, it, it's very emotively done. You know, the Americans are piling on the pressure. And there are safe haven reports sent back to Washington during World War II. And one declassified cable sent by an allied spy codenamed The Saint. And he wrote, have contacted high-level Swiss who uncovered a trail of 280 trucks of German gold bars sent from Switzerland to Spain and Portugal between May 43 and February 44, total value estimated between $600 million to $1.3 billion. Gold was shipped on trucks with Swiss markings. And D'Amato, the senator, is told by the Swiss in 1996, 1997, that's impossible. Couldn't have happened. And then he says a few days later, he was told, well, yes, it did happen, but it's only 70 trucks of gold. So that's not going to go down well. What happened to all that gold? So some of it, as we mentioned earlier, was given back to the Allies. Some of it simply disappears. You don't know where it is. There are many gold trains that are being sought all over Europe. Oh, any of them real? Is this Yes, no, no, some of them, first of all, some of them were found, but some of them did disappear. And we're not quite sure which bank account they're in and who's got them. Do the Nazis have them in South America? Difficult to know. But having said all of this, the final report in 1999 determined that the book value of all dormant accounts potentially belonging to victims of Nazi persecution was 
only $27 million. What would that be in today's money, approximately? So basically, you have to times by 10. So we're talking $270 million. But Switzerland, in addition to these bank accounts that were opened by Jews before the war, Switzerland had accepted 75% of all gold transferred abroad by the Reichsbank during the war in the way that we've been mentioning, totaling 280 tons worth 390 million. Once again, you've got to put a zero on the end of this. And contrary to denials initially in Bern, 61 million of that gold was bought by three private Swiss banks, SBC, Credit Suisse, and UBS. And records showed that the Nazis had confiscated and plundered $146 million worth of gold from private individuals during the war. So once again, with a zero, we are potentially in the billion range, although obviously not all these plundered accounts were Jewish. And then there is the final straw, when there are individual class actions launched in the United States claiming damages against Swiss banks, launched by 10,000 Holocaust survivors. You can just imagine what's, what's happening in the world and how the level of anger against the Swiss is just building. So faced with all these allegations, and they're now threatened with boycotts against Swiss businesses, the Swiss banks finally release details of accounts belonging to Holocaust victims and agree to pay money back. They settled in August 1998 to pay $1.25 billion. That was an accurate sum? No, it was not a proven amount by any means. Obviously, it didn't only include the dormant accounts. It included money that had come from Nazi Germany and from other countries taken from, stolen from the Jews, and illegal money from the Nazis, and the class actions of many survivors who had untraceable assets. And one can assume that there's sort of a, an amount due to aiding and profiteering from their crimes by collaborating with the Nazi banks. But it's an unknowable amount, actually. And how is it handed out? So what happens is they hand it over to two or three Jewish restitution funds for them to deal with it. And this agreement ended all the suits against the banks and to threaten sanctions against these banks by 20 United States, different states. And throughout it all, the, the Swiss government and the central bank was at arm's length from the settlement process. They had set up independently in 1997 a 300 million Swiss franc humanitarian fund. Now, in addition to this, Researchers in German and American archives discovered that the Allianz Insurance Company had, during the Nazi era, insured, first of all, insured uh, contents and concentration camps like Auschwitz, and that they had profited by keeping the money owed on policies unclaimed by heirs of murdered Jews, although it's not as much as the emotive level that is often assumed. Other German researchers revealed that there were large 
high-profile German companies, Daimler, Volkswagen, that had used slave labor but didn't pay compensation. And that, by the way, is a policy that in many companies persists to this day, that they haven't paid a single penny. There were many high-profile companies in right. Auschwitz using slave labor. Right. Siemens. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. IG Farben. Yeah, whatever. Well, so you're saying that the, the Jews got money back eventually. Obviously, it's impossible for the exact yes. amount to go, but yeah. so, they did pay up. Y- yes and no. It did bring millions of dollars in settlements for Holocaust survivors and their heirs, but this restitution, viewed as a success, created moral issues. Firstly, does the demand for financial restitution demean the memory of the Holocaust? Should it be publicly pursued? And how should the funds be fairly distributed? Should any of it be used not for the survivors? So, you know, on the first question, there were some public Jewish organizations went on record to say that litigation trivialized the Holocaust and made it that Jews didn't die because they were Jews, but because they owned, uh, you know, Swiss bank accounts or Monet's or Stradivarius violins, and that the final word on the Holocaust will be Jewish gold. But that argument was already over by the time the agreement was made with the banks. Of far more importance, and still ongoing to this day, is who gets the money. Israel Singer, he's chosen as the president of the Claims Conference after his successors as the WJC leader most responsible for the restitution settlements. So he says in June 2002, and I quote, While our first obligation is to take care of Holocaust survivors, the remainder of any monies should be spent to ensure the existence of the Jewish people. He invoked his authority as a child of survivors. The entire Jewish people are the heirs of Holocaust survivors. Survivors should not decide all questions about funds restored to the Jewish people from the Holocaust. That alone would be a matter for debate. Right. So many Holocaust survivors are outraged that the entire Jewish people are the heirs of the survivors. You know, you have the Holocaust Survivor Foundation president, David Schechter. He says... The organizations that negotiated in the name of survivors are pushing to be the organizations that decide how to distribute the leftover money. While voicing empty rhetoric about taking care of survivors first, they have given paltry support for the real social services of the needs of survivors today. How dare these institutions presume to spend restituted funds for their favored philanthropic projects into the next century using money claimed from the most terrorized victims of the past century? What about Holocaust education? Would you consider that to be a... Listen, that's part of the question. Is that a valid use of the money? I'm not going to give an answer one way or the other, but I think the most important thing is who gets to decide these questions? Who answers it? Okay, so to end, I'm going to put all of this together in a story. One of the benefits of having guests for Shabbos is that two days ago, I heard the following narrative from the family themselves. Thank you, Eliana, and thank you, Katie and Pat. Belgium, 1942. A wealthy religious Jewish family are in the business of importing Swiss watches into Belgium. They would put gold cases on them so they had access to bars of gold. And they're still in Brussels in 1942. Two parents, a teenage boy and a girl. But once the girl is asked to report to the police, the father gets the family smuggled into Switzerland and he stays at a friend. A few days later, the Swiss police ask that all foreign residents register 
So the father goes to the police station. You know, it's not like he's at the border where the Swiss turn Jews back. He's already in the country. But unfortunately for him, besides for being Jewish, he has another strike against him. He has lots of portable wealth with him. So the next day, the police turn up, they arrest him, they seize all his watches, his gold, his money. There's documentation of all of this. They arrest them, they move into a town on the French border. Now, the father had a friend in the Swiss parliament who wrote to the police to release the family. But the Swiss lied and said they'd already been taken across into France. Once again, this is all documented. And the police dragged the family through the streets. It was a public holiday in Switzerland. So lots of people are in the street. They hear the mother screaming. They're taking us to our deaths. And the people are shocked. And she actually fainted. This whole thing is recorded by a local journalist. Didn't help. The police order them into a taxi with a Swiss police escort to cross into France. And that taxi... They, this family, Jewish family, had to pay for, and the receipt of six francs 80 um, issued by the taxi driver is still around. And in France, the adults are taken to Auschwitz, where they are killed, and the children survived. They come to Switzerland after the war, and unlike most people, they knew where the bank account was. It was in the Berner Cantonal Bank. Didn't help them. He has been told, the son, by his father's Swiss business associate, that the account contained at least 200,000 Swiss francs, which is nearly $2 million in current values. They come to the bank, and the bank manager says to them, there's no trace of any bank account, because if an account was dormant for 10 years, the bank would have destroyed automatically all the records. And we have terrible difficulties tracing old records. You know, it's sort of collective amnesia which affected all these bankers. <laughs> you know, I spent an hour and a half in conversation in the past two days with three generations of this family. They got a personal apology from the president of Switzerland, but no parents and no money and there's obviously much more to the story but this unfortunately is where it gets controversial even after the one and a quarter billion dollars was given to jewish organizations this family got one thousand five hundred dollars that's it wow. and it's a shameful situation all around you know in a country like this the organizations that control the holocaust money are few that amount is an additional slap in the face almost better to give nothing right so, you know, things started badly in 1933 and got far, far worse during the war. But how did it end for many survivors in the 20th century and even into the 21st century sometimes? Whatever. But we move on. That's what Jews do. And in fact, next week, we move on to talk about dysfunctional royal families in history. And the oh, that's so far back in history. <laughs> well, we are going back. We are going back to the Middle Ages. Yeah. And the effect they have had on the Jews of their kingdom, you could say spare members of royal families. So this has actually been requested by quite a few people, even though people know it's a history podcast. When there's current events, they like to see how and yes. that history keeps repeating. Before. Yep. And okay, looking forward to the next one. Thank you for another fascinating dark series, but I think very important to know. And with all of it, I just see the miracle of the Jewish people's survival and rebirth and 
you know you look Growth. around the world today yep. and you see the fact that we were all everything was taken away as you said family but even the the shirts fell back all money was stolen and we've somehow rebuilt against all odds so thank you it was very powerful please keep sending all your questions all your reviews all your feedback to podcasts at jd.org.uk make sure you follow and you like these episodes that will enable more people to find them thank you